Welcome to Full and Frank, a series of podcasts from Macris Exchange, spanning the worlds of finance, politics, sport, and the media. Welcome to this Full and Frank podcast on behalf of Aquas Exchange. I'm Michael Wilson. I'm joined by my good friend David Buick. Good day, sir. Good day, sir. Hope you're well. And I am indeed, thank you. And I'm honoured to say that we're joined by a celebrated banker, fund manager and the quintessential financial and market commentator, Justin Urquhart-Stewart. Welcome. Um, welcome, welcome, welcome to our podcast. Let's let's start, if we may, you know, right at the beginning of your story, a very interesting childhood and also schooling at Bryanston. Well, that was right. Yes, I'm a, a Scottish family, so therefore I should have gone to a Scottish school. Mother said that absolutely dreadful go off to this strange English school um, where they, they don't have a proper uniform. You have to wear shorts. And uh, so, and they do arts and theatre and things like that. So the result is, A, you have a pair of shorts, which are quite long when you're 13 and hot pants when you're 18. <laughs> and the first qualification you get is in stage makeup from RADA. So that obviously means you're going to first get a career heading for the city straight away. So it was a rather strange school, but um, anyway. What, what, what took you what, what took you from a background like that in, into, in, in, into, into the financial world? So there, there you are at Bryanston in your hot pants yeah. and your shorts. Yeah. And then, what, what? That's it. And then and, 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 and an illegal motorcycle as well. And uh, not deciding what to do. Everyone goes off to university. I say, sod that, go monkeys. Go off and go and actually work for a cousin of mine down in Bordeaux. To end up spending the next 18 months going around France and a bit of Germany uh, working on vineyards. And it was actually rather fun. I thought it would be a good idea to do that. Came back to Britain and had an eye, this wonderful concept. And I was thought, I, you know, I'm sick enough to be a lawyer. Why don't I go and do wine law? You know, because there's going to be an awful lot of European law coming out of wine. It was a cracking good idea. He said about 20 years too early. But went off to university uh, to Southampton to go and do law, because that was the only place that did European law. And frankly, I was probably too thick to go to Oxbridge anyway. And, uh, and that is actually where I ended up on Southampton Docks, because like any good university student you haven't got any money and so you don't call yourself Justin or Eric Stewart you call yourself Chun and Chun and Stewart and uh, join UCAT to Union Construction at Allied Technical Trades and work on Southampton Docks and it's clothes it's a clothes centre so once you're in the thing um, you know they're quite pleased because they can't get too many workers in there and so John Stewart ended up being elected a shop steward mainly because I think it was the only one to actually put letters together not always in the right order um, and uh, of course, then once you get caught into that, you're into the system of how the union runs. And in those days, because it was a closed shop and a closed shop with the management, you had this sort of strange income coming off the boats at Southampton. And so you had the, the old South Africa line boats coming through. So there was this lovely cupboard on the shop stewards and, uh, and management uh, um, hut, and it said master plans. And once a week, they put up this huge catapult and flick this lot over the wall of Southampton Docks. There was some other nerd on the other side who then caught it or co collected it and then sold it round Portsmouth and the dodgy areas of Southampton. And then we all got a cut of it. That's my first experience of how unions work. So th th there you are, Union Castle. Obviously, Africa had a big calling on you, did it not? But yes. then it was Barclays and, Barclays and, and, and off to Uganda. Well, I did actually try and go and I went to, went to go to the bar, to bar school to go and do my bar exams. 
And, you know, it's a, it's a different type of bar, but in fact, actually, it's just the same type of bar, but different type of exams. Very quickly realised, even in those days, that there was no money in crime. In fact, my pupil master training as a barrister said, Justin, there's more money in crime than defending it. And so you have to go and find a decent crime, which obviously that meant financial services. Now, look, there's crime, whatever it was. And I wrote off to all these international banks, and they all looked and sounded the same, standard and chartered and that lot. And it's Barclays DCO, Dominion Colonial and Overseas, wrote back. And they were a, they were a separate bank from Barclays, same, same head office, and this that and the other, but run by a different, different bunch. And it was, it was a sort of colonial bank. And they said, we're going to send you off. And they had this big book, we went from Antigua to Zimbabwe. And eventually in Uganda. I said, oh, no, Uganda, we need more people in Uganda. Yes, sir. And uh, so we're going to send you off for training to Wandsworth. Wandsworth? Wandsworth? What earth was Bondsworth got to Uganda? Anyway, no matter. So I spent three months in Wandsworth, not the prison, although it might as well have been. And then off to Uganda, and you're virtually given a, a sort of solar topi and a huge great book on bush banking, which is basically a fascinating book, How to Run a Bank on Your Own, on the basis that nothing's going to work. Uh, when I got to Kampala, you're quite right, nothing was working. They put in a new telephone system, which consisted of a new telephone, which was great. And I said, uh, does it work? He said, no, it's just the telephone. We haven't got any telephone systems yet. Uh, and we thought, this, this place is just mad. But banking carried on. And bush banking is actually extremely profitable, mainly because the margins are so good. Um, but it, it's not private banking. It's not personal banking. It's corporate banking. But you know, you're having to do pretty basic uh, commodity stuff, but old-fashioned stuff, but actually trying to do things like letters of credit, all deeply tedious things. But that's how you do you know, get a yeah. piece of item from A to B and the money goes the other way. And, 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 and you still, do, 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 and do, do you not carry a little, bit of, a little bit of a reminder of Uganda about your person everywhere you go? But there's an old family history in my family. We've all been in the army since 46, 1746, um, and uh, it's the Battle of Culloden. And uh, I'm not sure, sure, sure which side we we're on, like most Scots, both sides. Um, actually, um, I should go to Cumberland and told your family, though, but he did. <laughs> and they've got, well, they're all in the army ever since. I'm the first one that didn't join the army. Uh, my father got very upset with me. So I said, Look, why did you join the army? I said, Look, father in the gay Gordons, brother in the Queens, what do you expect me to join? The WRAC, whereupon he hit me rather hard, quite rightly too, um, insulting him. But in those days, of course, joining the army meant going to Belfast, and frankly, it wasn't that wildly attractive. So um, that's why I thought other things might be more, more interesting. But as, as you say, Michael, uh, slight problem with Uganda, uh, had coups on a regular basis. And uh, one night going home, I find myself there had been another coup. We knew that coup, nothing particularly different about that. But when there's a different coup, new lot come in, they move the roadblocks. Um, and the roadblocks in Africa don't consist of red and white striped poles and a bloke with a peak cap. It's three blokes sitting in a bush. And you know where they are, you slow down, give them a tip and on you go. The trouble is they'd moved, not the bush, but the bush was still there, they'd gone. Unfortunately, the next lot decided to find another bush 200 yards down the road. Of course, we didn't know they were there. And of course, unfortunately, drive past, whereupon they get insulted by that, start shooting at us. So it's a bit tiresome. And finally, we got out. Barclays, unfortunately, forgot to insure us, but he always had these slight problems. Um, and you're quite right. I have uh, still to this day bits of some wonderful pieces of uh, Russian lead wandering around me and some superb pieces of Volkswagen. Um, because it's Volkswagen Beetle, thank heaven. So most of the bullets hit the engine. Um, and unfortunately, some of them still managed to hit me and uh, my colleague goes with me. So anyway, it took about, oh, about two months to get out. Um, but uh, out we got. And uh, then it took about another 18 months in hospital. So uh, put me back together again. 
Uh, lost, so, uh, anyway. so, you're, so you're moved to Singapore. There was an 18-month gap before you went to Singapore. Oh, that? no, no. That time here, no, had success. But then banking in London again, sort of recuperating back in the city. Right. Um, and uh, then off to Singapore and then doing corporate finance out there. And, and, what was the, <laughs> and what was the Lee Cran Yu sort of regime like? I mean, it was, as I remember, so I was in the midst of money broken. and it was absolutely gangbusters in that, in yeah. that during that period. Well, of course, what they had was, I know, it was, as long as you obeyed the rules, uh, they were, you know, the regulation was very strict in everything in Singapore. Uh, it was democracy, well, sort of. Um, it was a, a leaden hand, but with a velvet glove on it. Um, and as long as you, you, know, you stayed within the rules, you could do really very good business indeed. Um, and uh, you know, the Chinese, remember, it's a Chinese island, it's not a Malay island at all. And they were running incredibly efficiently. And you could see where this was going to be going over the next few years. Um, and so doing corporate finance there was fantastic. It's just starting to do trading there. And that was building up there. Stock exchange was pretty small, but other commodity stuff was building up. And so you could see that was actually going to be a great success. Um, and I thought about whether I should actually stay there or not. Um, so I do have some family out there, but uh, in fact, I thought, well, no, time to go back to London again, because you knew by that stage, things were beginning to change in London as well, because we're on the build up to Big Bang. Michael. So, yeah, I mean, that, that, that was the big thing. I, I tried to, it, it does seem like a long time ago, but it's not yeah. that long ago. I mean, it, and I tried to explain it as, as the toffs and the spibs getting together for <laughs> round about the first time. It's probably a bit clumsy, but there's a lot of that in, in there, isn't there? That, that basically you got the, these wonderful people called traders and, and the toff. So the toffs weren't very good at trading, but the traders were, the toffs were good at being toffs. It was a right old buggers model. I mean, uh, whilst the city was, has got very many things going for it, unfortunately, of course, it hadn't, London hadn't changed for a long time. So we still had you know, the old fashioned stockbrokers, awfully nice people, but in terms of traders, they're not really very good. Um, whereas actually, you know, actual proper traders didn't really come in until post Big Bang. Um, and That's of true. course, you actually had to then, if you were really thick, you went to Lloyd's. Um, and, uh, but of course, with a lot of the stockbrokers themselves, and I remember starting off at Shepherds and Chase. When the, uh, the one of the partners came through and said, uh, two trades per client today, please. Calagay, Karen, who didn't realize, of course, it just meant churn the portfolio, um, as of course would be completely illegal now. And of course, it was whole thing was commission driven. And in terms of uh, trading of stocks and new issues, and it was it was a pretty closed business. Um, and it really was until we started having Mrs. Thatcher coming in, uh, waving a stick at the City of London, saying, "Reform, or I'll do it for you." Um, and uh, then suddenly things started to change and you did see a big change. But of course, what you meant was linking together three parts, which didn't logically link together. You know, market makers who operate one way, or jobbers, um, you know, the brokers themselves. And then, of course, actually putting that together with merchant banks or the investment banks. And of course, three totally separate cultures rammed together. Um, and Barclays, of course, being normally late on these things, uh, went along to bought Zoot and Bevan. Um, and, and I know Richard Delac, who's written, who used to run Web Delacker, um, and I said, how did Barclays negotiate with you for, for, for Web Delacker? And they, see, they just came in and said, how much? And so they had to go off and actually think of a number, because the only companies had any assets. You know, they didn't own the property at all. It's just the only assets that actually uh, uh, Web Delacker had was, was the wine cellar. And <laughs> Barclays never asked about it, and Barclays never got it. Um, it's actually done in Axminster, but uh, we'll keep that between ourselves. Um, and uh, it was really quite astonishing. And of course, the management of it, you have Barclays Merchant Bank, which none of us had ever heard of. And then you had the, the linking these other two together, uh, ramming them together in, um, 
um, uh, in uh, Edgate House. And of course, they're complete and utter chaos, trying to actually organize this converted, um, uh, well, it was a, a multi-story car park and it converted into a trading room. And it was just a complete mess and the attitude. But upon the a key basic thing, as classics within the city, different languages. Everyone had different terminology for things. So actually trying to get something done quite straightforward, it was very, very complicated. Did you get much access to David Ban before he died, Justin, or not? Not really, no. But it was, it's, it, it, kind of, I would have had, wish, I wish I had done, because unfortunately, um, no, he wasn't, wasn't, wasn't really easily around for us. What, what did you feel about the about about the, the senior management in Barclays, if I can ask that question, because there is a there, there was a feeling that Barclays, for, probably for a lot of the reasons you've just been talking about, maybe that's were not exactly on, on top of their game as far as this was concerned. Yeah, they weren't. And you could see that right up to just the past, the past few years. It's carried on. What you had was the old uh, families, and there were basically six main Barclays families, who were called Barclays. Um, and uh, there was at one stage, I remember, a Barclays DCO, they actually produced a list of available Barclays daughters, <laughs> which you could potentially <laughs> marry. And the idea of getting yourself in the family, of course, no one, no one would ever admit it existed. But anyway, God knows what they look like. Um, anyway, the point was, you had the, the various families, and they controlled basically regional fiefdoms. And, but they were corporate bankers, local bankers, really in terms of actually understanding the city and how that worked, not really their world at all. Um, and so the people running this new animal really had very little understanding at all and really had no idea how to manage such a beast. Um, and so we end up with uh, Martin Taylor coming in and Martin Taylor, who was, you know, a breath of fresh air to it. But of course, everyone then, the, the old bankers then uh, uh, reel against him because he's trying to change it all, which of course it needed. Um, and so it, it really, you can see it going right the way through to the issues had over the past few years with those uh, hideous scandals over um, you know, the money being paid to the Qataris and things like that. And some of the Barclays people involved that dates right the way back to that period. And that lack of understanding, that lack of management control. Um, and that to me is when it started falling apart. No, no, I, I, I was, I just, there's, there's a final listen, person that you didn't mention there, of course, Bob Diamond. Did you have, yeah. did you, did you have much, much exposure to, to Barclays? Uh, I'm pleased to say I didn't have too much exposure to him. I know, it was a bit dangerous getting anywhere near him. Um, I mean, he was uh, no, uh, a terrific trader and that was his background. Um, but frankly, should never have been allowed to run anything at all. And if you allow him to run a trading desk, by all means, but yes, yeah, sit on him to make sure actually you can control the risk. But yep. because Barclays didn't know how to control the risk, didn't understand what was going on, he was just a, I don't know, a bigger version of um, what you saw with that fellow out in Singapore. Do you remember with um, with Bearings? What his name now? Uh, and uh, you Nick know, Leeson. Was, Nick Leeson. Nick Leeson. Yeah. So he's imagine imagine Nick Leeson except running something the size of uh, Visa W. Well, mm. that's it. Just the uh, the trading side of it. So let me play the devil's done. let me play the devil's advocate though, just a little bit because I think yeah. I'm right in saying between 1990. And 2000, when you left Barclays, I think that Barclays Capital produced between 40 and 60 percent of the profits on an annualized basis because it was perceived right or wrong that the Barclays management were behind the curve as regards joint stock backing, banking for a want of a better. I mean, you had Peter yeah. Middleton, Andrew Buxton, Martin Taylor, Matt Barrett. I mean, you couldn't find more four contrasting people if you tried, but they yeah. never seemed to be part of the of the team. No, you're absolutely right. Bit, I, I may be wrong, but that's no, no, from no, the no, outside of looking in. 
No, you're absolutely right. They didn't understand it. They couldn't run it. And so they let Bob Diamond actually run the capital side and it was very profitable. And that business is profitable. But so long as that is your life, you haven't sit there trying to manage the risks and actually controlling the amount of capital that was being used. Because increasingly they were using more of the the banking side of capital, remember those headlines, raiding nurses' bank accounts, which is actually rubbish, of course, but what they were doing was using more of Barclays' other capital. And it was very profitable. Profitable on the basis, though, without measuring risk. And then, of course, Bob was taking greater and greater risks. And no one on the Barclays' banking side really understood that. Um, and so to me, then, when you end up with Bob Diamond taking over the whole thing, and with one or two people who I knew who were with him, um, and I thought, this is now looking quite, quite dangerous. He had a chap called Roger Jenkins with him as well, and one or two others who were, frankly, chances, um, and should have been there. Actually, quite talented people. Actually, very, Roger was a very talented person, but he needed very tight control in order to make sure he was going the right way. He let you, take the controls off him, and he could take bigger and bigger risks than they did. Yeah. David Buick and Justin Urquhart Stewart became on the speed dial of everybody that I knew working. No, 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 Justin is in the league of his own. Yes, he did. And, yeah. and, 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 and what, what would happen is that occasionally one's bosses would say, oh, no, not him again. And I used to say, you get, you get this completely wrong. What, what these two do is actually to explain something which has been a closed book for so many years in a way that the person, as we have to call them now in the street, um, understands, understands what's going on. And it, fortunately, I suppose, in a sense, business finance forced its way from the excuse about obscure back page, isn't it? To, 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 to the front, to, to, to the, the front pages. You, Justin, were you particularly moved up a, another gear. I remember you first of all from Barclays stockbrokers, obviously, but then again from the from the eighties into the nineties. It was it was it was it must have been like picking the the proverbial low fruit for somebody like you. It was it was a fascinating time, and it was great. I was a, a huge admiration for what David did in terms of explaining really complicated uh, trading issues to the public and actually opening up finances. Because we don't. One of the big things I know David's got as well. We don't teach people finance in this country, so people leave universities huge amounts of yes. debt. They have no idea what pension to have or how much they need. Why? Because we don't tell them. And in order to the industry, except one, you're going to have a punt on something, which doesn't really help very much. But no, it was great. But see, one of the problems was. Uh, and we had this at Barclays, was that uh, when we set up Barclays Stockbrokers, because we'd broken away from BZW, set up the B score Broker Services, which was a white label business for other stockbrokers. And at one stage, we were the biggest stockbroker in the country, because we, we represented 16 different stockbrokers, from Nico Securities through to Barry's and Barclays. And then Barclays ended up taking over one of our shareholders, and I found myself back in Barclays again, which is not quite what I'd intended. Anyway, so we set up Barclays Stockbrokers, and we were all pissed off because they'd managed, I don't have to say that, um, but fed up that um, they sort of stopped all our marketing. Anyway, BZW was shutting down at Edgate House. So in those days, remember, you used to have messengers. I still had a messenger. So I had a messenger, Peter Jackson. I gave him a letter. I said, Peter, this letter will get you into Edgate House. Go to the trading floor, get that camera and come back. If anyone stops you, just say goodbye. Anyway, he goes there, and about half an hour later, he phones up and says, oh, Justin, I've uh, got a slight problem. I said, well, just leave. He said, no, 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 slight problem. Well, what is it? He said, the camera. Well, what about it? It's on the wall. What? It's bolted to the wall. I said, oh, God, I thought it's freestanding. I said, well, look, don't worry, leave it. He said, no, no, don't worry. No, Peter, leave it. An hour goes by. Peter comes back through the door with a, with a trolley, and there's a wall on it with a camera attached. And I said, what the hell have you done? 
He said, well, I've got the camera. I said, yes, but you know, it's a car park. That's probably one of the retaining walls. He said, well, it's still standing. Uh, yeah. Anyway, so we got the camera. We attached it to one of our walls. BT moved at speed. So about three months later, we got it working. We didn't get, unfortunately, the special screw which adjusted the angle to the camera, so it was fixed. So anyone who was using it had a series of boxes to stand on to see whether they were the right height or not. I needed several. Um, and we got someone to paint a sign behind saying Barclays Stock Brokers, rang up Bloomberg, who were just starting Bloomberg Television those days, so fancy a market report. Um, and it went from there. And uh, so it was, it, it was you know, just building a brand um, and uh, with somebody else's television camera. <laughs> Do you think you ever got the um, acknowledgement from the, as I like to call it, the Black Eagle, um, the, the incredible job you did of brand awareness for Barclays? Because it was phenomenal. Oh, thank and you. But they hated it. They absolutely hated really? it. Really? Yeah, it was, the whole thing was, because oh, it's corporate jealousy in terms of, oh, but you're now getting more profile than Barclay Card. And he said, well, it doesn't really matter because we're not Barclay Card. It doesn't um, matter. You know, and if you, you know, if you can prove the image of, uh, of this group, you know, bank, people don't like banks. So you can try and make something which is reasonably pleasant about a bank. And if you can get, of course, we had things like working lunch um, starting at that stage. And of course, we had one M. Wilson Esquire at Sky doing, doing his, uh, his thing there. And this was fantastic. You know, business was becoming popular. Um, people were interested, uh, and uh, David, yourself, and, and obviously Mike as well, being able to make sure that people wanted to know more about this, how it connected to them, and what they could actually do. I fear at the moment, we're going backwards at the moment, we're not spending enough time actually, again, engaging with the next generation, albeit the tradingness has actually changed into dubious things, which I'm not too sure I would understand, like cryptocurrencies and things like that. No, but what I think, if I may just interject here, where I thought you were sensational, was being given the platform of moving away from Barclays, setting up Seven Investment Management with Tom, which I'll hear about in a second. But what you had, which no one in the entire industry explained better than you did, was the banking crisis. And that, I think, really did an awful lot, and justifiably so, for the Stewart brand. It was actually manna from heaven, wasn't it? Well, they're very kind. I mean, it's, it's taking advantage, unfortunately, of other people's... Uh, I know, but still it was manner from heaven. It was very helpful to have that, too. They made sure that the people were phoning up saying, please explain what this is and how it actually works. Uh, and most of the time, one understood. But it was, you know, it was manner from heaven because you need to have stories coming through the whole time. Yeah. Um, and also how that banking crisis is going to... It affected everybody. And if you could come out with messages which are saying, look, don't panic because this is what might happen. This is where you can put your money. This is in the long term what's going to happen. Um, and give them some idea that actually the world isn't about to end. Um, then that people wanted to hear that. They want, you know, don't give us bullshit. Don't give us uh, the next uh, stock tip and things like that. There were an awful lot of people trying to do that the entire time. Um, but just give them confidence that actually things will change and this is what we need to try and do. And it was. It was very dangerous because none of us had lived through that before, when we suddenly saw Northern Rock disappearing like that. And, uh, and you have people phoning up saying, you know, well, you know is he going to go? Oh, I remember a certain BBC interviewer the night before saying, oh, will you come on? Because uh, we've just had Northern Rock's just drawn down some more money and I've got to be able to comment on it at the 10 o'clock. I said, you're not going to say they're bust because they're currently not bust. They probably may well go bust, but that's not an issue. So oh, I'm not going to say that at all. Actually, when he went on, he didn't say that, but that's what everybody heard. 
And uh, so that's why it was so dangerous. And what uh, and, uh, people were saying, be really careful not just to mislead people, but also give the wrong impression about what's exactly. going on. Yeah, exactly. Particularly that question of confidence. We've got yeah. a lot to ask you, Michael, crack on. No, no, I was, I was just going to say, I couldn't, I, I couldn't agree more. I'll, I'll tell you just a little story. So when, 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 despite, you know, I had, I went through the same thing with my management working in the media that you were going through with Barclays. And I was telling them in 2008, there is going to be a very big story about all this. And that, yeah, thanks very much indeed. Yeah, we'd rather do X, Y, and, 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 and it, it got kicked under the carpet. And then suddenly it all happened. Unfortunately, we got onto the, the trading floor at CMC Markets. Now, there's a reason for me telling you this, not because we did it, which was absolutely great, and all the rest of it did exactly the same kind of things that, that you that, that you did. You did them far better than I ever could. However, the managing director, whose name you know very well of CMC Markets then, Peter, one Peter Crudders, came up to me and said, thank you very much for um, for increasing our turnover by about 100%. Nobody had <laughs> heard of CMC Market, but the, yeah. fact that the media was there and there were big signs. That this was what, what it was all about. I was trying to do the same sort of job that you were doing. You were doing it obviously much better, I said, but you're trying to say to people, look, this is going on, this is happening. Let's decode this and put it into language that everybody could understand and and I think that you know you 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 got a lot of points for doing that. It's very very difficult indeed. Simplicity well, is all. Well, you, I mean, we both salute your flag, but we need to crack on here because there's so much to talk to you about, Justin. Tom, you and you decided enough's enough, and Seven Investment Management came up. Um, why did you feel that there was a niche for you in the marketplace, which was clearly was for when you sold a high percentage of it to uh, Caledonian? Totally yeah. justified. Did you have enormous fun? And where did you find that niche that was missing it, from the other big fund managers? It, it, yes, parts of it were fun, parts of it were horrible as well. Leaving Barclays, when Barclays uh, properly took over the rest of Barclays stockbrokers, because we'd actually set it up in Glasgow uh, for one particular reason. Um, actually, Barclays is an English Welsh bank. Um, and not a Scottish bank. And so therefore, actually, anyone by Barclays director needing to come and see you has to have board approval for overseas travel, which is hysterical, which meant for years you get uh, an odd director turning up, arrive on a Friday afternoon, so obviously he's going shooting for the weekend. You tell the local taxi company, go, don't go on the motorway, go via Paisley because it takes an extra hour. An infuriated director turns up an hour late. It's not terrible. So I look, thanks for coming. Here's a bottle of scotch for us. Thanks for coming to see us. Bye. Um, and Barclays took no notice of us for years. And eventually, now we got rumbled and they decided to take over Barclays stockbrokers and make it part of the retail bank. At that stage, I thought, no, this is, you're going to get this all wrong, going to go horribly wrong. And they started introducing extra charges. They even introduced an inactivity charge. So you get charged for doing something and you get charged for doing nothing. I thought, oh, for God's sake, grow up. So Tom, who was running the um, uh, execution side, uh, had the same thought. And we both thought, we went out and bought a box of swan vessels and we got all those lovely papers from Barclays, which gave you so many extra sort of benefits and um, shares and uh, emoluments. And we made a pile of them uh, in his garden and set fire to them and said, right, so that look quite literally burned that boat. So we don't have to worry about share options anymore. Um, and uh, right, let's go off and have a go. What are we going to do? And so let's do an investment management business um, where we can see investment management is needed, but it's failing, which is in the IFA world. Um, let's do something without any trading commissions. That's purely based on, on formats in terms of percentage. It goes up, you earn more, goes down, you earn less, um, and try and do it that way. 
we were a little early into this because you still had IFAs earning a huge amount of commissions off the, uh, off, off the fund managers, but that was going to be changing. Um, and so that was sort of a niche we were aiming for, bringing in an awful lot of, as well, use, use of ETFs and things like that, because a lot of them were some perfectly good fund managers, <laughs> and there were some absolutely useless ones. Um, and, but actually, ETFs could get us a long way through, um, and then starting to use all the different asset classes of ETFs to actually do multi-asset portfolios, but with ETFs. And so you can reduce the cost down from 1.5% plus other bits and pieces they always have to add on. Remember, they had TERs, total expense ratios, which didn't need total expense and wasn't a ratio. But apart from that, it made a lot of sense. Um, so we could actually bring that down to about uh, 0.2, something like that. Uh, really make it very small indeed. And uh, we, some of them got down to even, even lower than that. Uh, and so that was a good niche to try and work out. The margins were very, very thin indeed. So you had to have a lot to try and make it worthwhile. And we got up to about 14 billion of assets. Um, wow. And then we were finding a buyer for it. And I'd never gone out and sold it to, to family or anything like that. But over time, more and more people I knew had come. So you can't just sell it off to some terrible private equity firm who's going to rape the business. So I ended up selling it actually probably to the lowest bidder. Uh, why? Because well, we had you know, some of the private equity firms offering eye-watering amounts, but they would have absolutely wrecked it. Um, and so Caledonian is a lovely old, it's the old... Uh, Kaiser uh, family, Ka isn't it? Exactly, it's the old shipping family. Yeah. And it's, uh, in, uh, so they, it's basically their, their family fund. And their average investment period, unlike a private equity firm, which is about three years, um, is 11 to 15 years. And they had a long-term view, and I thought, perfect, that's what we want. They couldn't bid quite enough, but we managed to massage it through so they can get around to the right sort of level. Um, and uh, so that was it and took it over and uh, left them to save another couple of years. And then uh, they were transferred to the next management because I put in the, uh, put in the uh, terms that when you get to 65, all the old farts should go. I suddenly realized I was 65, so it's time to go. But you had the house in days. Michael, come on, step in. Take us, take us through then from that to, to, to 2020 and, and, and regionally, which sounds a, a great idea. And it's exactly in that sort of range of people that need not a massive amounts of capital, but yeah. need more than they're going to get from their local Barclays bank manager and all the rest of it. How's that going? How's that going right now? Tell us a little bit about it and, and what the future well, oh, the, the whole idea was, and they uh, uh, will know this, and I might have bored you with it before, but after the war, there were actually 45 stock exchanges in Britain. Okay, they were useless, but there were about seven of them that were actually operating quite effectively. And of course, all a stock exchange for is to raise local money for local business at its base level. Um, and uh, so originally, actually, we started AIM in Glasgow. It wasn't called AIM then, but it's basically for the local software businesses. They're mostly doing you know, very, very simple software games. Um, and uh, London, when they took over and shut down Glasgow, found itself with this rather strange baby. It didn't know what to do with it. But it's big enough to keep going. But they had to then construct an aim around it. Um, but the point was, you then lost that local contact. So I'd always had in my mind, look, there must be a demand for the gap between um, uh, its uh, private money, which will take you up to, if you're talking individual friends and family, up to about half a million, uh, up to institutional money, which starts at 20 million, maybe 15 if you're lucky. Um, but there's a gap there. And we're really good at starting businesses in this country. We're actually rotten at funding them once they've started and got going, get to grow. So the concept was go to the regions and all the regions say, that's a cracking good idea. And I said, well, I can't run it for you. You've got to run it. Here is a system which we can control centrally. It doesn't have to be in London. Um, and then you can badge it regionally. 
um, a region as in with the Southwest, where Newcastle, whatever it happens to be, um, and attract more people to be investing in those companies. So that has set up and got going. Now, whether it's actually going to work or not remains to see. And I'd love to say it's been a great success and it's going flying all over the country. It's not at the moment. Various areas have taken it saying, yes, we can run with this. Um, but it'll take time to get the economies of scale to actually make that worth or worthwhile. Um, so it's not so much a great profit maker or money maker for me. Much more, it's one of those sort of structural things I wanted to put in place. Say, look, what have I done? I hope I've achieved something by building something for the next generation. So and that's this the way is all. This is all part of what I would describe as levelling up, isn't it? I mean, aren't you going to be requirement of having people like Andy Burnham on board yeah. and Andy Street yeah. and that other marvellous bloke in Middlesbrough and all the other things saying, you know, you want your own uh, autonomy. Here you are. This is a platform. Yeah. Here's a, a, a fantastic idea. And without their help, it's going to be a struggle, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah. And of course, it, you have to get it across to them. And then, of course, so also people saying, because there are a lot of local uh, funds already there saying, oh, look, we're already raising for money for local businesses. It's not just the funds, it's the local investment. And then having invested, getting out of it again as well, creating a level of, you know, there's never going to be much liquidity. Um, so you'll have to sort of uh, done on the basis of uh, matching orders, but at least you're providing a local process. And so although you've, uh, the regions say, yes, that's a good idea, you don't have to fight almost the local funds to say, look, we're not working against you, we're working with you, we give you more, more liquidity. And slowly that's coming over. Uh, I thought actually it would be much easier. Um, and there were various areas which were more difficult, i.e. Scotland, because some idiot had actually tried to actually reinvent a Scottish stock market. And I said, look, that's a really stupid thing to do because you're reinventing the wheel um, no, we've gone past wheels now, um, and merely going back to an old-fashioned mechanism was not it. So managed to get, I think, two million quid out of uh, uh, that Scottish lady. Um, and of course, that just got completely wasted. So uh, the point was going back to Scotland for a while. Um, but no, the, so the concept is there. It'll take a while, and the logic is there. And it, is, it would be a perfect levelling up process. How do you get more money into Newcastle? And the answer is, well, there's more money. There's money already there. It's just that someone took the plumbing away to enable investors to invest in local businesses. Oh, right. So take it from there. So I'm, I'm hopeful that it's going to work in key areas. And once it's seen to work in key areas, it will then spread. But it's a, it's a longer term play than I thought. Um, we, we, we've talked about crises um, and, and we've, we've talked about problems and we've talked about how you've commented on them and you've increased people's understanding. What do you feel about where we are right now? A bit of a broad question this I know, but I mean, you know, David and I were saying before we started talking to you, we, we, we try not to watch the news anymore because oh. it's, so it's so depressing. Um, I, is, is, that, is that because the news is depressing by its very nature? I, this is what the news actually likes. Or do you think we are now facing something which we have not really faced. Maybe our parents did all those years ago. I, I think we are facing something which is very worrying, uh, not just politically, but economically, uh, uh, whether it's in terms of inflation, whether it's Russia um, and, the, and the environmental issues as well. Uh, and all we are highlighting in this country is a bad, badly behaved government um, and in terms of um, you know, how politicians behave. When, hang on, the rest of the world is having some severe difficulties and we're worried about a couple of people misbehaving in the Carlton Club. Um, and it's, you know, so uh, what do we say to people now, apart from, you know, it's pointless panicking, 
But at the same time, there are no easy answers to this because this is going to be very difficult and dangerous for people. Um, the global economy is still growing. The global economy is slowing quite significantly. Um, and uh, we're going to be seeing, I think, some very dangerous times. What's Russia going to be doing? None of us know. Ma managing inflation, which of course two generations, uh, we're of the generation where we remember 25% inflation back in yeah. 1970, whenever it was, and it was horrific. But of course, this lot don't know it. Um, and managing that through is going to be very difficult indeed. And of course, the reaction from the unions, who thank heaven are nowhere near as strong as they were, um, but nonetheless, it's going to be a very difficult time indeed. Uh, all the more reason that we have to go out and teach people to say, look, it's a dangerous time, so you're going to have to look further forward in terms of returns. Assume that the global economy is still going to be here, albeit damaged. If you think the world's going to end, either in a ball of fire, courtesy of the Russians, or because the environment blows up, then buy a case of scotch and go and sit in a cave in Wales. Um, if you don't think it's going to happen, think about the longer term across your family, across the generations, and building up longer term assets and longer term view on things. And that's all we can try and do. Um, and, but get people an understanding of their own finances, um, because trying to make understand what's happening in the global economy is incredibly difficult. And what happens next, none of us know. I think the reflection that we've had um, in the course of the last or the first six months of this year is that when you look at huge companies, let's let's look at Germany, for instance, which has got a totally different economy from the UK. Siemens down 36% since the beginning of the year. ThyssenKrupp, 45%. BMW, 20%. Volkswagen, 29%. That's grown up. And look at North America. Amazon down 35%. Apple, 23%. Tesla, 43% down. Yeah. I mean, these are huge, huge erosions yeah. of value. That, that vast, absolutely vast. And I, one of the messages I put out, I, David, I know you do the same, is, look, you can't always tell the future. You can look longer term, but also make sure you've got cash because there will be those moments when you see things at ludicrous prices. And again, if you, you think that the world's going to carry on and we're not going to disappear off the world, um, actually, there will be a fantastic time to actually be going to buy. You're not going to put everything on there, but if you build up a little bit of cash on one side to be able to take advantage of those, don't bother about stock picking, buy an index of something, be nice in general, don't have to take too much risk on it. There are going to be some fantastic opportunities coming up. And so you can actually start drip feeding stuff. It may not be yet, um, you know, time to come, but my God, you look at those quality companies there you were just going through, yeah. and the quality ones in America, um, and okay, they're changing. We're changing from the old-fashioned American corporate into the newer ones with new technology and such like. And of course, the great thing Britain's got going, um, and I know, is actually we've always been very good at technology and startups and small companies. We start up, we do more startups than Germany and France put together. But we're really bad at doing the next financing. What we do is say, here, that is really good. And the Americans and the Germans probably buy them off us. <laughs> we need to actually focus on those. And you can see where they are in all those nickname areas of Silicon Roundabout, Silicon Glen, Fen, uh, Bridge, Beach, whatever it is. And they breed. And they are fantastic. And I love going to these places. Even down in a place called Hale, down in Darkest Cornwall, the unacceptable version of St. Ives. Um, nothing happens there except a little group of really good high-tech businesses. Uh, they got really good internet access, which was the last thing the EU gave them, which is why they voted to leave, I think. Um, and it was just quite astonishing. Um, and so that, I think, is one of the great hooks that I think uh, the UK has got as a great advantage, just that we have to make sure we take advantage of it and not just panic.
I think that's right. I mean, the outlook immediately for the next six months looks horrific, but you've got to be a believer of the glass being half full. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, if you don't believe that, then you know, go, go, go to the pub and stay there. Um, but it's still, I think there's, those companies, they're not all come through, some won't, but they're going to be changing. So if you don't know all the companies, you can just buy the index. The global economy will turn around. Why? Because it's in everybody's interest to do so. You may not understand Chinese, uh, Chinese or China, or certainly not their accounts, but they too need the economy to grow. It's not in their interest. And remember, Russia is not a big economy. It's a dangerous economy. It's a dangerous yeah. country, but it's not a superpower. Um, and so it's going to be done what we do with China, what we do with Japan, what happens with America and what happens with Euroland as well. Um, we and so it's changing. I don't believe it's going to stop. We're going to have some really painful things to deal with, particularly with some of the weaker countries who are going to suffer famine and issues coming out of because of the problems in, in Ukraine. And that's going to be difficult to manage because when you see social destabilization, then the dark forces come in and cause more problems for it. And you know, as in the West, we're not strong enough to respond to it in the way that we were, even though we responded rather badly last time with the likes of Afghanistan. So I believe actually, I'm still half full. And I don't believe the glass is, is uh, broken, maybe have certain chips on it, uh, but can be repaired. And so therefore it's this matter, don't panic. We don't have all the answers, but let's look longer term. And by the way, in terms of your money, don't just think about you, think about the family across the generations. And particularly when people are sitting there saying, I can't afford a house. You're right. But the family can across the generations. Um, we, we, we already have a red nose day in this country. Listening to you speak, we ought to have a red braces day. <laughs> <laughs> Could talk all day to you, Justin. It's been fascinating. And just thank you so much for your time. David, thank you so much. Michael as well. It's been a great privilege and thank you. Thank you.